Hey everyone, welcome to This Lesbian Ship is Intense. I'm Katie. And I'm V. And uh, we are just here to talk a little bit about a show called First Kill. You may have heard of it. It may only be the number three show globally trending on Netflix. Other than that, has anything interesting happened to you lately, V? Well, um, this is really hilarious because we decided to go ahead and uh, do the first episode of this podcast right before I went on vacation. And I have to say my phone will not stop blowing up with notifications. Uh, Yeah, so I I would say that this has been pretty eventful. I cannot keep up with all of the follows, the messages, especially like the fact that the show, some of the actors are engaging with us, like cannot handle that. Yeah, that has been the shock of a lifetime, really, because uh, just number one, our intention of doing this podcast is never really to get anything from the people that create the show themselves. We've always wanted to do this podcast out of love for something and to share that with other people. Yeah, so to say that uh sarah Catherine hook herself listened to our podcast and shared it with all of her adoring lesbians and dm'd us personally after we posted it are you fucking kidding me what the fuck this makes me think of like like the meme like i'm fine i'm fine it's fine everything's fine i'm fine <laughs> totally fine and chill and like not crazy or anything like that it's so great I think you said that you know we do this podcast to have fun to share like the passion with other people who are passionate and I think it's fair to say that thus far based upon what the official Instagram and some of the actors um, and the creators have posted on Instagram like it's clear that they are also really passionate about their show and it feels really good to support something that is not only queer diverse all of that but like they they care about what they're doing you know like that feels good to support them yeah and I think the overwhelming support from everyone listening to us like one of the reasons it's been a lot for us and I feel like we share kind of a much smaller version a kindred spirit with the show of like the the like little engine that could or whatever like the underdog mentality a little bit like we originally started doing this because we were like really passionate about this relationship that wasn't treated fairly and we saw so many people's voices that weren't being heard and we didn't feel like we were being heard and that's always what we wanted to do and we formed such a community And that's what's kind of made me emotional is like, there are several of you that have stayed with us from that point four years ago. And so many of you have reached out to us and are saying like, oh my gosh, you deserve this. Like, this is a win for all of us and all of these things. And I'm just like, you angels are truly a blessing to us. Like, how did we deserve that? 
posted something recently about like, you know, not to get emo on Maine, but this is giving you a lot of feels because we started this exactly for those of you who are new, which I would say is a lot of you. Um, we did start this four years ago because we really cared about a show that felt like they were undervaluing um, a relationship and we did not think that people were speaking about it in a way that was accurate or representative of the people that it uh, meant to represent. And so it felt really good to go ahead and give a voice to that. And we've kept doing this for a while, but I don't think we've had the passion for anything in the same way until now. Like this is the first time that you and I have felt so passionately about a show, about advocating for it, about seeing beyond the super like beyond the superficial the outer layer that people can look at and not be critical and it's just oh it feels like we're getting back to our roots it feels fun it feels fresh it feels amazing to be here again really feels like a bunch of people coming together to support this show and it's really beautiful to see and be a part of I don't really think I've ever seen anything like this before Give us a season two. <laughs> oh, God. I know. Seriously. After this weekend, uh, getting back and looking at things, I'm just like, all right, what's the hold of Netflix? Like, come on, come on. We've proven that there is an audience. Give us a season two. And the fact that Netflix keeps operating from the stupid model is also what pisses me off because the one of the reasons we've been trying to be so interactive is... They want to see longevity in your interest in a show before they'll renew it. That's what they've been telling us. But their binge model is not conducive for that because everybody has a fucking short attention span out there. So that's why we're just like hitting it pedal to the metal because I'm trying to keep you bitches with ADHD on track. We've got to keep talking about this show until it gets renewed. They will come up with every excuse in the book not to renew it. I don't trust these bitches. Yeah, and I think it's I think that it's safe for us not to trust. I mean, considering some of the things we've uh, experienced, some really great shows that have been canceled. And yeah, I think that it's uh, it just yeah, it does. It annoys me. Don't put all the shit out there immediately. Like, what are you asking? Are you asking us to binge or to have self control in consuming <laughs> right. it over the first two weeks? Because like lesbians sapphics who are craving television shows to see themselves representation all that shit are not gonna like pace themselves out on an episode a day like it's gonna be a binge and those who don't like binging like myself will also binge because otherwise your fucking social media timelines are a battlefield like i can't i like i can't go on any of my socials once a show gets released if i don't want to get spoiled and i hate getting spoiled so i just have to binge too Exactly. So it's it's not conducive to like having major fan bases anymore because they thrive off of something to talk about, right? So anyway, that is what is really beautiful about so many different people from so many different backgrounds, interests, environments. They're showing an interest for this show. And I don't think it's a coincidence that it's in 82 countries because that is the history of lesbian media, like accessing it across countries and sharing it with people. I think we've all always had friends from all different parts of the world engaging in this stuff with us, even as Americans. 
So it's pretty special that it's accessible to all these different people. Yes, it's it's really nice to make it accessible to everybody so that they can uh, consume it. And I just it makes it easier. This is one of the things that I do get really irritated about is the fact that we can't take screenshots um, off of Netflix anymore. Like that just makes me angry because like, look, I want to keep talking about your show. Let me fucking screenshot your shit. <laughs> yeah, there was literally a tweet going on about that. It's like, do you want to go fucking viral or not Netflix? <laughs> like, Exactly. Because, like, if I could easily screenshot shit, I would probably tweet more. But, like, I got to go, like, a couple extra steps. Like, also <laughs> shady steps. <laughs> like, I just don't want to do I, I can't. So, you know, even though we've been having a great time uh, and it's been so lovely to have people from the show interact with us, not only Sarah Catherine Hug. V.U. Schwab, the creator. We've had MKXYZ message us, who's cool as hell. We've had Gracie, who said Grenna for life, for all of you that know her from Chasing Life. How cool. Like, that is very special. But I'll never forget, and I think those of you that have expressed interest in our past podcasts, if you really want to know who we are, this is what I would say is our favorite episode between the two of us it's when we were advocating for adina on the bold type and sharing voices of muslim lesbians across the world and their feelings about that character um we had this follower and listener that was from kenya and every week she would get a group of girls together to listen to our podcast and talk about the show and have this little gay club and she's kept us updated on her life and her journey as a person and it's just that little reminder that there are a lot of people who aren't represented still and getting that representation in the spotlight is really important for people and that's why we started this podcast and that's why we're going to continue it kind of weird to think that we can have I mean I think it's what I would hope you know I care about interacting with other people I care about having meaningful interactions um but I don't know that I when we did this thought that we would mean anything significant to anyone and it's really cool to think that we do Right. We did this just to have fun with our friends, which we're still doing with the same people right now, which is really cool also. And so that kind of brings me to the next point for people that are asking us questions about our podcast, asking us to have people on the podcast. We have had engagement with people from TV shows before. We've had Rob Lowry, the music supervisor for The Bold Type on our podcast before. So it's not out of the question. We've had writers like talk to us before, but if you want us to have a shot, please rate and review us on iTunes. And that's all I've got to say about that. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Let's work together, people. (laughs) (laughs) So if you like what we're doing, um, if you hope for more from us, support us in, in trying to make that happen. And I think rating and reviewing would be exactly the way to do that. And other questions about what we cover. So we're not planning on anything outside of First Kill right now. And we just take them as they come. Like it has to be a show that we equally feel 
really strongly about to talk about, which can be challenging sometimes. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we just like we had magic <laughs> in the beginning. Like we just like, I don't know, we met up in fandom and then it wasn't until the second season. So like we'd been talking for a while and then finally we were just like, oh, fuck, we got to do something. And we watch I think we watch a lot of the same shows, but we feel varying degrees of intensity about different things. And so absolutely, it has to be something that we're both interested in watching watching and preferably something that we are both very passionate about and then we go from there because we want this to be fun we both have stressful full-time jobs (laughs) so doing this has to be a fun reprieve from that exactly and which brings us to the point on our release schedule so we are trying to get this to you at the end of every week send up a prayer for us we're gonna try our best (laughs) Yeah, I was like, should you, you probably should tweet at me about how excited you are, because then I'll feel motivated to actually do this um, on a time schedule, and I will try my best, because I want to be consistent for y'all. Okay, so that's like our business stuff, which no big deal, that wasn't anything that's happened lately. I want to talk a little bit about the behind the scenes of this show, and also what makes it feel so special Um, I listened to an interview with the showrunner Felicia Henderson and listening to her talk about the process of forming the show, how engaged she was from the very beginning, how intentional she was about representation on this show, both on screen and behind the scenes and in the writer's room and how much she wanted this to be a fun and joyful experience for the cast involved and the crew involved. I just feel like this doesn't exist like elsewhere, y'all. How many times have we heard from actresses that there was something sketchy going on with a showrunner or how if a actress of color were to speak up against something in their work environment or confront that showrunner how that could have negative consequences for their career I mean we've seen it as people that have followed these storylines for years now countless times which doesn't get to get talked about because the people in power suppress it you know what I mean so to hear a story of a showrunner doing something so impressive in an environment that is really hard to do that in, I just have a lot of admiration for her because I don't think some of you realize this, but if you ever have to confront the white man in power in your real life jobs to set the tone for what you want, it doesn't go as smoothly as you think. I'm just like wondering, (laughs) this is like one of those things where I'm just like, is that not obvious to everyone? And then I have to remember (laughs) that like my POC experience is not every person's experience. Um, So yeah, (laughs) absolutely. It's not always easy. I would say it's hardly ever easy, (laughs) even when people have really great intentions. Um, It's just, it's just a difficult thing. So... When we're advocating for our multiple season renewal pickup, we also want our showrunner to come back and to keep this up because I don't think 
people are giving her the credit that she deserves for what she put on our screens and did behind the scenes. I just had such a flashback, Katie, where you said we want our showrunner to return. And I just like was like, no, no, don't give me a great season one and then change my fucking showrunner and make me angry for the rest of the series. Anybody that comes after her will be infamous. So it better not happen. So let's get into episode two. And I've got your notes because you have told me what we should not miss when talking about this episode. So hope we don't disappoint. Episode two is called First Blood. It was written by V.E. Schwab and Mark Hudis and directed by Jet Wilkinson. So let's just get to the obvious first thing. An opening kiss, two episodes in a row. Who else is doing it like this, V? Uh, nobody. Nobody. <laughs> the L word, which... Oh, you know what? Yeah, you're right. But that would be <laughs> so intense. But see, the L word has always been the exception. Like, yeah. we have the other thing, you know? And one of the reasons why I haven't kept up with the L word is because it's like, I have problems in my life that I don't want to watch on the L word. Like, <laughs> I don't need to see myself that clearly. <laughs> can I please just like watch some fantasy gay people for a little bit like that's what I want right now are you telling me that in your day-to-day life you're not having to worry about being staked about biting someone none of those things <laughs> uh, no I'm not but we're starting off on the right foot again and we get the tas- classic young adult opening about Newton's third law where each <laughs> Action has its equal and opposite reaction. That is our theme of this episode. The opposites are attracting and pushing against each other. Um, So we have some nice tug of war going on between Jules and Cal. And we are learning about that right Mm -hmm. away. (laughs) Yup. And we see that immediate, that first action and reaction, that bite and then the stab. (laughs) So you know how later on... We learn that they're connected because of the bite, right? But yet their Mm -hmm. connection exists outside of it. Mm -hmm. So what if their connection is also based on monster hunter lore? So there's something about their connection of being bitten and stabbed at the same time that has them linked. And it's not just Juliet's bite. I'm just saying, if monster hunters are also thousands of years old and there's something specific about their relationship, maybe this specific moment is kind of their driving force through the rest of the series. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just thinking, you know how like like the show is like in witchcraft and shit? Like, what if this was like they accidentally performed a ritual? <laughs> like, why not they accidentally set off like an ancient curse that's thousands of years old? Like, fuck yes, give me that. So Jules passes out from this stab and is shocked to be stabbed and Cal is also shocked because Juliet is not disintegrating in front <laughs> of her eyes. And 
they're playing i think you're the devil you make me want to sin it's and then it's gonna get real ugly when you break my heart the whole story is literally in that lyric we're setting it up from this moment mm -hmm. this is what i'm saying about the bite and stab having much more impact than we know about yet mm -hmm. yeah it was really, really great. I think especially because of like when it played where you see Cal not only being confused about the fact that Juliet didn't um, disintegrate as a vampire, but I also think that part of the emotions running across her face are the conflicting feelings of shit. I was just making out with this person who I'm attracted to and I like and then I stabbed her because she's a vampire. Do I want her to disintegrate? Do I not want her to? So I think there's a little bit of that. And as she looks frazzled running away, are cops chasing her? Are they going to the p party? What is going on here? Yeah, I, I was really confused because I was like, why is there a fire engine and police like racing somewhere? Because we there's nothing to indicate that there is a reason that they're like going off somewhere. I mean, in the, like a scene we're going to find out about Ashley. So I was wondering if they were already in pursuit of Ashley, but they didn't show the viewers that. I don't really know. No, because I was like, Cal thinks she's running from the cops. Is she running from the cops? I mean, are we, I think we're supposed to just assume they're going after her because of Juliet and that's what Cal's scared of? I mean, I don't, I don't really know because I think Calliope's running. I mean, a, a couple of things like it could be shit. I just staked a vamp and I fucked up. She's about to wake up and get me. Or it could just <laughs> yeah. be like, I don't know what happened and I need to run home and be like, Ma, can you explain this shit to me? Because like, I don't know what happened. <laughs> and can her mom ever explain that? When the police officers, oh, when they slow down and then reverse and stare, or they slow down and they stare at Cal and then they drive. And like when Cal looks at them, I'm immediately stressed out. Like I immediately clock that they are two white officers and I'm immediately stressed out because of, you know, the, the power dynamics, the racism that plays into a lot of these power dynamics. And then when they reverse, I'm like, oh, fuck, no. I was like, girl, get out of there. Like, I was so stressed for Calliope. I was extremely stressed as well. I was like, Cal, if they weren't chasing you before and they see that you're running, they're going to start chasing you now. So we need to hide and quickly. Like, Yeah, that's like the worst thing is like, oh, my God, it was just awful because I was like, if you run, they're going to think you're suspicious and go after you. But if you stay and they catch you, how are they going to treat you? I don't know why they went after her other than just being like, suspicious young black woman. Running. Yeah, I don't know if, I don't know, maybe their intention was to make us fear for Cal in that moment and build that up. But I was like, whew, that was a lot of tension for me for it to like not go anywhere when <laughs> she just gets away. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yes. Oh, <laughs> her like vaulting over the car and like running. Oh, I'm jealous of her long legs. I'm sure. <laughs> like I was just like, yes, be tall. <laughs> yes. So then we go back to the party and Ben is walking towards his crush, Noah Harrington, and the lights go out. And Ben stumbles into Smashly. We have the lights go back on. Smashly is brutalized on the ground. I just thought it was hilarious that, like, when he trips over Ashley, he's just like, oh, sorry, Ashley, what are you doing on the ground? Didn't see you there. <laughs> <laughs> like, just, like, not like, what the fuck are you doing on the ground? Like, <laughs> Her name is Smashly. She has a reputation. 
So I'm not sure what to think of this witch at the moment. I, I was so confused. I had so I was like, I was like, is that an adult at the party? Wait, no, she looks a little ominous. Is she a witch? Is Ben the only one who can see her? Like I just like, did not know. <laughs> Truly did not understand what was supposed to be going on here. So then we have Cal escaping the police. We breathe a sigh of relief, as does Cal. And she reaches up to the side of her neck, and we see that the bite marks have disappeared. So this fed into my whole, like, what is real, what is not. I was like, Cal, did you make all this shit up in your head? Like, (laughs) where are the bite marks? I thought maybe the witch did something that made the bite marks disappear. And then we jump over to the Burns home, and we see Talia sneaking out into the hallway because she hears something and the Burns brothers also appear and we find out that there's a shambler in the house and he's destroying her kitchen (laughs) so she's gonna take it out it was pretty clear that he was like searching for something because he was completely uninterested in the family as they came down the stairs and I would just like to say I love this sequence with Talia like she is joining the category of epic tv mothers in that place in the genre she's a badass and we need to acknowledge it i like her badassery i think there's like another scene in this episode where i was just like all right mala (laughs) and then we go to juliet on the floor pulling the steak out blood dripping down her face like (laughs) That fucking blood on her face. I'm like, why are you not dead, Juliet? I was like, did they miss? Like, did like, does it need to go straight through the heart? Uh, when she sneaks out of the, or like, she's looking out of the pantry and, like, sneaking out. I'm like, you're covering up your fucking chest wound, but wipe the fucking blood off your chin. Blood off your face! Yes! I'm like, Juliet, blood on your face is not gonna change the fact that you look suspicious as fuck right now. Also, I just love that as she leaves, we're just left with, like, this empty room with cherries all over the floor. Like, these girls had an epic moment, and their life is now in shambles. Oh, God. I'm just, like, thinking about the police finding the um the phone, and, like, do they mention the cherries to Papa? When they, you know, like, not really sure what went on in that pantry. <laughs> I there were a bunch of cherries on the floor. It's like people are gonna start being suspicious of what Julia and Cal are up to because everywhere they go, there's just a bunch of fruit on the floor everywhere. <laughs> They're just like, what happened here? Why why were there why were there a bunch of insert fruit of choice here all over the floor? God, I'm just imagining people like coming across just like fruit, just be like, they were here, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, with how much everybody's obsessed with calling gay people fruits right now. First first kill was ahead of its time. Cal and Juliet are leaving fruit in their wake. It's like, I will take it one step further. (laughs) That's camp, baby. So we go back to the Burns house. The Shambler is after a summoner. And so we find that out. Talia kills it. It's disgusting. She tells Apollo to get the head off of her rug. With the two swords, just knocks that head off. I was like, get it. (laughs) (laughs) 
Then we have Julia sneaking into her mansion with a towel on her chest. Nothing suspicious going on. Blood still on her face. Yes, and then fucking Margot like hears her immediately and is just like, "Where have you been?" But the minute she notices the blood, it's not like a bad thing, you know. It's just like, <gasps> you know. And then she like checks the teeth and she sees it, and and the and the mood totally shifts. Where she's just like, "Did you do it? You did it." Which becomes a family ap- a- affair where dad and sister show up and they're like, oh, did you do it? <laughs> That's what I was going to say. Was like- <laughs> what, is the- what is this scene? Are you serious? This is crazy. The way the family gets involved, I'm just like, it just made me think about like when a girl gets her period and then like, it's just like they yes. tell everybody. <laughs> I, when the mom is like, I've got to call my mother and let her know that Juliet's a big girl now. I'm like, Oh my God, this is going back to period drama right here. Yes. Oh my God. (laughs) And um, Juliet, by the pressure exuded by her family, feels pressure to lie here um, and say that she did have her first kill, even though she didn't. And we find out here that she has to have her coming of age ceremony by the first full moon after her first kill Mm -hmm. so even though julia tries to get out of it she's stuck because the full moon is this coming weekend she fucking tries to get out of it because she has to paint sets with ben i'm like that is not a good enough excuse girl (laughs) also i want to say do we know at this point in time that dad is the da because i wanted to point out the fact that I think, like, Eleanor must have asked about the body or something like that. And mom's like, who gives a shit? You know, dad's going to help take, like, hide it or whatever. And I just need to call out, dad is a district attorney. He is in a position of power, which, yes, is important when you think about it with regards to them being vampires. And in order to integrate themselves and stay safe in society, they need to infiltrate those areas in order to stay safe but I do also think I have to believe that the show with a diverse cast is also making a commentary about the systems that exist in our current world and I think that it has to be speaking about the fact that hey this white district attorney is in a position to protect his daughter from consequence of her actions that are wrong that if someone else perpetrated would you know he'd, he'd come down really hard god this made me think about abortion <laughs> Well, I do think it's intentional because you see Juliet and Juliet's family and Cal and Cal's family interact with people of power and law enforcement very differently throughout the course of the show. And that has to be intentional. Another important point here about the lore of the show is that vampires are coming from all around the world for the ceremony for Juliet. So it's a very powerful family. We're really giving off. What are those people for the Volteri? Like these, Ooh, yeah. like, like the Twilight governing body vampires or whatever they are. So we, that is always a play here moving forward. Okay. We have a confrontation at the house between Theo and Apollo in the wake of the Shambler there. And we find out that the shambler be- could come into their home because of the summoner and something important for the big picture later on is that it is suspicious that a summoner is in a graveyard 
But this is more of an emotional scene because we find out the last picture of Theo's mom was damaged and the frame that she made was broken and that Apollo needs to think before he acts. Is this like our first time learning? Because I think it's the first time I realize that Theo has a different mother, like bio mom. They show the picture in the first episode, but they don't actually acknowledge it till this episode. Yeah. Okay. I was just like, oh my God, Apollo, if I were you, I'd be so stressed. Like with Talia um, saying all because you couldn't follow one rule, don't steal shit. Like I didn't like I would have like whimpered if my mom like yelled at me in that way. I feel very guilty about my brother, like losing something connected to his mother who is dead and gone. And then when mom is just like, I'm not going to stand for this bullshit. And she throws that knife like right through their face. I'm like, Ooh, that that's the moment where I was just like, okay, okay. Miss Burns. Yes. And also as longtime listeners know, with my disclosed mother trauma, I, of course, love Theo and love his storyline and his journey this season. And I really sympathize with Theo. Those things are really important to you as you move beyond like the loss of someone important to you. So I could see why the actions of your brother being so reckless about something that important would make him so upset. God, and he doesn't apologize. He starts a fight. I was so annoyed. (laughs) I was like, man, that was his mom. He couldn't just say I'm sorry before getting defensive. And then, of course, Cal tries to sneak in, but Talia is not having that. And Cal is sitting inside. And she's forced to retail where she's been. And she's like, oh, I staked a vampire, I guess. <laughs> and she's like, uh, vampires disintegrate. And Cal's like, well, she didn't, but I saw her fangs. So this is something. And then Talia's just like, we'll discuss it in the morning. And I'm over here thinking about the fact that Cal could have just like stabbed a girl at this party and left her there and we'll just deal with it the next day. That's what I was like. I was like, Talia is just like, well, if she passed out, I'm sorry, you're mistaken. She's not a vampire. But she was so unfazed. I was like, okay, so then if it wasn't a vampire, can we talk about the fact that there is a probably dead human? I'm like, what? I also wanted to point out um, the differences between Juliet and Calliope where so Juliet sneaks into the house and wants to be unnoticed and does not want to talk about her, you know, supposed first kill. Whereas Cal is sneaking in the house, but when confronted is like immediately is like, let me tell you about me staking a vampire. You've got the yin and yang very early on and the contrasting. And I think it's really important that we see how contrasting the families are even though they're supportive of each girl in different ways they're still very different and it really makes sense as to why Jules and Cal both behave the way that they do I feel like the families actually enhance the characters of Julia and Cal and that is what is great about family storytelling. If you're like actually making a difference in the main character's life, which brings me back to my point, like where do you see this in lesbian characters on TV these days? Then we go to Juliet staring at her stake mark in the mirror 
and she keeps it <laughs> like as a keepsake. Oh my god, I know. She like hides it in the bathroom cabinet. And I'm just like, is that the safest place for it? Juliet, maybe because you've been out to your family, you don't have any good hiding spots. <laughs> To keep these things from your family, but you cannot keep your steak in the bathroom. I'm also like, I don't think she washes the blood off of it. And I'm like, you live in a house of vampires. They will smell the blood, Juliet. <laughs> yeah, so we know something is going to happen with the steak. And I'm also just like dying on the fact that Juliet is like, semi-captivated about being staked to the heart by Cal. I was wondering, was it meant for the audience to see it healing? Was it meant for us to see Juliet likes Juliet's intrigue, I guess? Yeah, I wasn't sure if there was any bigger intention with us seeing her look at her injury again. I think there... I think it's a mistake not to think there's an intention. These are the main characters. Like... I think there is supposed to be multiple meanings in most of the scenes that we're getting with them. Mm -hmm. So I think it is meant to set up that despite this action, like Juliet is still kind of intrigued by Cal and also that she's healing from it. Mm -hmm. Okay. I like that. And then that brings me back to my point about the lore. Like, Cal is fascinated by the bite on her neck. Jules is fascinated by the stake in her heart. Like, does that combined action mean something? Yep, yep. And then we have Cal having a nightmare where her mother becomes a monster that disarms her. And her mom comes and saves the day in reality and says that the worst monsters are the ones who appear to be human. Never forget that. And this is clearly important for Cal's journey moving forward in the show. Yeah, definitely. We keep getting that recurring messaging of a monster is a monster, no matter how human it looks. Cal is then woken up from that dream and forced to go downstairs with her mother early in the morning. Then Eleanor is paying Malcolm a visit and... She is using her powers, both natural and supernatural, to get what she wants out of this situation. And we find out that this body was brutalized. The liver is missing. There's no blood. <laughs> I love that you said the liver is missing as if though it could just disappear. <laughs> the liver was excised, Katie. <laughs> that shit was cut out. <laughs> it's gone. Where did my liver go? <laughs> <laughs> Let's play a game of operation and get the liver out of Smashly. <laughs> Um, this is very alarming for Eleanor because obviously that is a very violent way for someone to die. <laughs> and the idea that Juliet could do such a thing is upsetting and also hilarious at the same time. So she like insists on seeing the body and she sees the head injury and then like you see her like running her finger down the vein and she notes that there is still blood in the veins 
And I think that earlier when she when Juliet had come home, I wasn't sure if Eleanor believed that she had actually done it. And then when this happened, I'm like, Eleanor's got to be suspicious. Like she I think she came in initially to help with like the cover up. Um, But I think that her suspicions are growing about Juliet as to whether or not she actually committed this murder. But it's clear something isn't lining up for her and what's happened and what she knows about Juliet. I think it'll come up later, but I think that like there's possibly some like mixed feelings for Eleanor about Juliet having her first kill. Um, There are a couple of other things I did want to say about this scene, which were that it seems like Malcolm was not surprised to see Eleanor annoyed, but not surprised. So this sounds like something like Eleanor probably comes and visits occasionally. And um, we learned that she is a paid intern for her father at the district attorney's office. And we also, what's important here is we find out that Eleanor has separate powers that the rest of the vampires don't have. She has the ability to wipe somebody's mind and make them believe what she tells them which is an extremely dangerous power, which the show does seem to recognize as dangerous. But one of the reasons why it's exciting for me is because this means that Juliet could have powers in the show. I've seen some people wonder if her power could be premonition because of her dreams. Mm, Um, So then we go to a scene with Cal and Talia, where... Talia is making Cal act out the scene from the night before in front of her. And she's like, we were in a pantry kind of close. And then her mom's like, why were you there? Cal's <laughs> like, it doesn't matter. Let's, let's move on. <laughs> let's move on. We don't need to address that. And she's like, she leaned in and I saw Fang, so I stabbed her. And she's like, show me what you did. And so Cal kind of like half-asses it because she's like, how do I fucking tell my mom how I found out this chick was a vampire? I really didn't know how that was going to go because Talia kept saying, I said, show me exactly what. And I was like, she cannot show you exactly, Talia. She cannot take the hint. She said she leaned in and I saw her fangs. (laughs) She has an actual flashback to that kiss in her head which is important she's fighting the emotional pull of that interaction with Juliet and trying to focus more on business and then of course her form is perfect so we're left with a mystery why did Cal stab a vampire that didn't die Uh, but I really loved the scene (laughs) with Talia and Cal after because there's a sense of pride that Talia has in Cal and I think that's really important for how Cal feels in terms of how she's connected to her family and how the Burns family really does try to support each other and build each other up. So then we go to more parents processing their children's behaviors. (laughs) Um, Juliet's parents are wondering why Juliet would do a head wound on somebody they are raised to feed and not kill. So he says, we don't slaughter, we feed. Because I have a lot of questions about how exactly they feed. So I think it's important for me to distinguish. I think they have a some sort of moral compass where they don't want to torture humans. We are... Um, 
kind of setting the scene here that there is a member of the family that might be a little bit violent. We don't know much about them. And they are concerned that Juliet might have the same type of monstrosity that this other person has. And I think this is very interesting for Juliet's character arc through this season and into season two, which I'm just going to assume that we're getting in how I talk about this show. I'm manifesting it. Yes. So from the beginning, Juliet is constantly referred to as a monster. Even though I, you could make an argument that she's not a monster, she's just trying to do her best. And I wonder what that says about, like, who do you become when you're put into this box of somebody and these conditions of how you're supposed to be? Like, do you eventually become that monster? And I think that's a really good question for Julia at the end of the season. When I first watched this for a second, I wondered if she had a different bio dad. Um, And I was like, oh, are they worried she's going to take after her, like, nature versus nurture type of thing? It's a running theme that we'll probably keep talking about. Yeah. So then we go to Julia at school. And she is walking down the hall with the lights flashing. She is not looking good. And Ben is just like, hello, why are you not answering my calls, bitch? (laughs) Crazy night last night. A girl died. (laughs) You know, Ben ends up recapping the night because he's like, how how did you miss this? (laughs) You know, like, this was a big thing. And Juliet jumps to, have you ever taken credit for work that you haven't completed? (laughs) And I'm like, Juliet, where is your, I mean, like, I know where your brain is going, but like, how do you expect Ben to respond to that? <laughs> Which he, he does. He's just like, he's like, Juliet, what the fuck? Like, I just told you Ashley's dead. <laughs> what? Typical teenager, like, stuck in their own world at that moment because it feels like your one mistake is the worst thing that's ever happened in your entire life that you have no idea how to get out of. Ben wants answers. He's like, wait, do you not know what's happened? Because you were still in the closet with the new girl. Did you guys kiss? Did your limbs intertwine? Did your lives change forever? Yes. Very, very realistic because like, you know how like when you're younger, you know, death feels so far away. So like, yes, while it's big, like it also doesn't hold the same gravity a lot of times. So like how easy it is for Ben to switch from like, Dude, Ashley's dead. I held her body to like, wait, you were making out with someone? That's more important. Give me those details. And this is just like such a realistic best friend moment. And also, how often do you get a conversation like this between a big romantic moment between two queer characters Mm -hmm. on television? Juliet quickly redirects this conversation Because even though they have shared their feelings since they were five, this is another level that Ben is probably not ready for yet. And then we set the stage that there's a vigil happening for Smashley later that night. So then we go to Juliet looking into her locker and we have red lighting, music blaring. She's looking for her pills. And then the music changes again. And we see Jules spot Cal out of the corner of her eye. So back at the DA's office, Eleanor and Sebastian are having a conversation. And he 
is not so interested in Eleanor's help, but she's like, I saved your ass. This guy was about to start blabbing about monsters in town. We learn here that no one knows anything about her power. She has an evil twin named Oliver. (laughs) And she's laying the scene that maybe daddy's little girl doesn't take as much after him as he thought. And that she is a little bit more monstrous like Oliver. She references him collecting dead squirrels just so he has something to play with. And I don't know if that's literal or that's an exaggeration to explain his evilness, craziness, whatever. As you know, I'll have lots of thoughts about this evil twin dynamic as a twin because I'm very sensitive to twin representation. So we'll see how this develops. Then we go to the saloon where we're meeting with Clayton Cook. A member of the guild, Theo and Apollo are sitting down with him and he makes a very important kind of statement that represents how the guild is going to be approaching the legacies. That time eats away at memory and vigilance, and it's time that someone made a stand against these monsters, right? So... The Guild is looking to make a statement here and change kind of the course of things, I think. And they don't really see a lot of gray when it comes to monsters. You know, they refer to this as a standard debrief when there's an incident. Um, I think they set up a lot emotionally, or at least for me, because with this interaction, I immediately hate him. Immediately. I just like, he greets Apollo as Mr. Sticky Fingers. He's like, we don't touch something out of its protective bag, do we, Apollo? Like, it's just, he just speaks so condescendingly, just so... I really appreciate it when Apollo's like, he wants to ask a dumb question, he can get a dumb answer. Because, like, that would be me. <laughs> right. Because, yeah, Apollo does have a chip on his shoulder, but there's also no reason for you to be treating him like that in the same breath. Yes. Oh, it just makes me think about how, like, adults and people in authority will talk to people in a certain way and then expect respect. And it's just like, mm, that's not how it works for me. Um. Okay. So now we're having a conversation with Julia and her dad. And he apologizes to Julia because he didn't have the greatest reaction to her first kill the night before, but he's incredibly proud of her and he's offering his congratulations and he's dropping off her phone from the night before and says, you need to be careful with what you leave near your bodies. (laughs) Yes. Um, good advice because your daughter does not think enough about being a vampire. <laughs> um, they do not seem to have adequately prepared Juliet for killing someone for the first time, despite it being a very big deal. Yeah, some like some basics. Yeah, exactly. You know um, how they have those like your first period books? Why don't they have <laughs> your first <laughs> you don't? My mom bought me one no i had no idea oh yeah my mom made sure to do that with us like they needed to go through the your first kill book with julia like how to set the scene how to bury the body like she needed to know these things she was inadequately prepared absolutely absolutely i'm just like trying to understand what their relationship is with feeding so i think i've decided that because they don't have eleanor's power they don't just feed from people you know just like take a little nibble and then send you on your way (laughs) (laughs) 
I think that when they feed, how often do they have to feed though? Too, I'm so curious. We, about this, all this has not been established <laughs> because we've not, other than Eleanor, we've seen no other vampires feed. Yeah. So we don't know what's normal and what's not normal for them. And we're setting the scene of the different personalities of these children growing up. Juliet had her doll that she used to use to like relay when she was scared of thunder as a child. Eleanor used to put her dolls in the microwave, you know, two contrasting personalities. And Sebastian gets serious with Juliet here and says that you have compassion and you still do. And although their mother may think it's a weakness, compassion is a gift that is meant to be embraced. That's a really beautiful message to teach to teenage girls because I really resonate with that as an adult. Like the older you get, your ability to be compassionate with people gets harder and harder and is demeaned and kind of stripped away from you. And I think it's something that's really difficult to come to terms with when you start interacting in a more adult world. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important to be emphasizing it as a strength to Juliet right now, especially when she lives in a world that thinks of her as a monster. And Juliet clearly feels guilty still about lying about her first kill and tries to confess, but dad thinks he's letting her off the hook and just says, you don't have to get into the details. I'll tell you my first kill story sometime. And we go to the vigil where Ben is hilariously and poetically retelling the tragic death of Smashley while making eyes at his closet case boyfriend across the way. I know. I was like, what? Why are you looking at Noah that way while you're talking about Ashley's death and his girlfriend's right there? Like, it was just. Ben, show some restraint. <laughs> but what's important here is Julia is clearly bothered by Smashley's death when she's looking across at her parents and feels bad about what's happened to her. And Cal shows up with Talia and says that she hasn't seen the vampire she staked yet there as she locks eyes with Juliet across the way. There is something about their connection that she can't explain that she knows goes against what she's taught, but the way she's feeling doesn't align with that. Oh, I'm very curious about their connection and disentangling what they were feeling for each other clearly before the bite versus the impact from the bite, you know, like I'm, I'm just because exactly she lies about it. And is it because there is that residual normal, you know, non vampire, non hunter feeling about this girl that I like, or is it some kind of bigger connection but from the bite that induces this kind of protection of Juliet, even though it's maybe something she wouldn't do. I'm just curious about what what influences her choices. So then we have Eleanor feeding off of a guy and using her powers, licking the wound and it's healing. And it's like, whoa, a lot is going on in front of me. Like 
we're having this very sexy vampire feeding, like seductress, succubus mm-hmm. shit going on, right? Yeah. Oh, and I think this is especially interesting. So Eleanor is the one person in the family who has the ability to erase someone's memory. So she is the one person in her family who does have the ability to feed from someone and not have to kill them without risking her identity. And yet she seems to kill a lot, you know, which we'll uncover later on. So I just think it's um interesting that she's the one who could could actually not do that and yet she does. I mean, she doesn't kill this guy, so she's got some restraint. <laughs> um, and then I just thought it was funny how she zooms to the exit. <laughs> oh, my God. We have to talk about this. We only see Eleanor and Oliver use super speed in the show. Mm-hmm. And it's always literally just to walk somewhere. <laughs> Never to assist them in any of their fighting. Yeah. <laughs> If we're not going to do it in the fighting, why do it at all? (laughs) To show us it's a possibility. (laughs) So somebody on one of our social medias somewhere made a note of the fact that when they do little vampire moments for Eleanor, it's in the black grayscale, like a a grayscale versus Juliet's red. I don't really know what that's meant to symbolize, but I thought that was a good observation on their part. And I don't remember who it was, so I'm sorry. Maybe that has to do with um, Eleanor's viewpoints on vampires being a, a little bit more black and white. So then we go back to the memorial and Juliet has known this girl forever. She's upset at the memorial. She starts crying and it is blood. And suddenly we have quite the conundrum happening. The music changes. Juliet runs off. Cal sees her and makes an excuse to go after her and does not tell her mom the truth. She suddenly needs her physics book. It's like, we're at a vigil for a girl who died. And suddenly you're like, oh, forgot my physics book. (laughs) That's really important. Let me leave this to go into the school. That was a lame-ass excuse, Cal. (laughs) That was... (laughs) We need to get better at our alibis, ladies. And then... We go to the hallway, and this is probably my favorite shot scene in the whole show. Because we have Cal and Juliet dressed in contrasting colors, and they're facing each other in the hallway. And the background of each of them is the color that the opposite girl is wearing. So Juliet is in a blue shirt. Her background is orange. Cal is an orange. Her background is blue. And we are setting like the clash, like force of nature that meets the dueling heroines. Like this is our moment. And it's very interesting that Cal, the human, is dressed in orange, which is a warm color. And Juliet, the vampire, is dressed in blue, which is a cool color. And these are direct opposites on the color wheel. So I feel like it's very interesting that we're saying that kind of their energies are pushing and pulling against each other here, clearly. Yes. Oh, my God. Like, I was watching it, and I don't even know what made me, like, notice it. 
but something did probably because it's like so starkly different. And I was just wondering why Juliet's background was such a busy orange, because not only do we have the different colors, but also Juliet's background has like, I think faces, shapes, like there's a lot of imagery on the walls, whereas Calliope is set against a very plain blue wall. And I think that might have to do with the fact that Cal feels a lot more secure in her environment generally than Juliet does, who feels a little bit more unsettled in her like vampire family. And of course, after this interaction, Juliet runs away and Cal chases after her and the music changes again. And we are in a game of tug of war plays in the background as they chase each other. And we are getting to a fight on the rooftop, ladies. Let's do it. I loved that song. I love that song so much. I was very entertained by it. Do they have a Spotify? I think they're supposed to have a Spotify that's a playlist because, you know, it's also a controversial topic on the music. But so far, I'm having a great time with the music on the show, oh. I've got to say. Yeah, I've, I've been fine thus far. Yeah. I love the little fight sequence that we have where Cal is like, there's nowhere to run. It's time to fight. And Juliet clearly doesn't want to do this and is kind of getting backed into a corner. Cal's like, why are you crying blood? Juliet's like, why did you stake me? Cal goes, why did you bite me? Like... Yeah, I also really like that that's her response to it because, like, it just further shows that her staking Juliet was a reaction to the being bitten. Exactly. That response is so important because she didn't say because you're a monster. She said because you bit me. Yep. There are so many things that Cal says throughout the season that just, like, show that she is trying to convince herself of the things that she has been taught. You know, like, where Juliet says, I wasn't myself, and Cal's like, you were exactly yourself. And it's just, like, another one of those moments where it feels like Calliope is trying to say, like, these things that she's learned and believes, blah, 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 to convince herself. You know, like, no, that was you. You are a monster. That's how monsters act. And Julia is kind of trying to play a little bit defense and isn't really even attacking Cal at first. And then the fight ends when Cal gets paralyzed by Jules' blood, which we find out is a element of the legacy vampire lore that their blood is paralyzing. And Juliet, you know, is very taken aback by that she didn't clearly intend for that to be the result of their fight and just kind of gently tells her that it will wear off and runs away yes uh i also just think it's really funny um i think it's funny here but it annoys me when people do this in real life where like calliope's just having like these reactions where she's just like what does she say she when Juliet's teeth come out, she's like, back off. And I'm like, you chased her, Calliope. You <laughs> chased her onto the roof. <laughs> Why aren't you telling her to back off? And then she's like, what did you do to me? And it's like, you punched me. You punched me and touched my blood. I did nothing to you. <laughs> and after she's the one constantly attacking Juliet, she's just like, get away from me. <laughs> yes. Then we go to Eleanor at the bar watching the news where she meets Apollo across the bar. 
and he kind of lays the the intention that he believes what's going on in the town is a cover-up and Eleanor just dismisses him and they have this very push and pull tension dynamic going on but they're clearly each other's character parallels throughout the show and they're kind of setting that up in the scene here and then we go to Cal and Juliet in the principal's office the next day for being caught on the rooftop. And Cal is stone cold, not playing any of her cards in the office, where Juliet is the one that then makes the excuse that she was upset. And Cal went to comfort her, and that's why they were on the roof, which then Cal starts to loosen up and go along with. And then we see... Margot arrive into the principal's office and you can tell that they're familiar with each other he greets her very kindly very friendly and then Talia comes in shortly thereafter and we have another one of those visuals of the difference you have Juliet and her mother dressed in very light bright colors whereas Calliope and her mother are dressed in darker colors um, I did wonder why Talia sits on that desk behind them rather than in the chair was that like a you know she's a set them I think that's her power pose like I think each of these mothers uses their power in different ways within the show mm-hmm. and it's very important because it's a very matriarchal dynamic so we have Margot using her power in a much more subtle covert way in the office And Talia is very much in a more defensive, protective stance when she enters, I believe. Ooh, that's a really good. Yes, because Margot is clearly very comfortable. She knows this person and she does that like I hate like, oh, it just bothers me so much. She does that very like, oh, you know, my daughter was just stressed and I have to admit I've added to like. So, yes, I could see Talia being more like. I'm new, I'm accustomed to being treated a certain way, like, let me go ahead and, you know, have some kind of, like, defensiveness power that I can. Talia is starting to make a connection finally, and she texts Cal to see if this is the vampire that she staked, because her hunter senses are tingling, Um, but Cal doesn't look at her or acknowledge this fact, this statement as true, but she can't deny it either. Margot reveals in this meeting that Juliet's coming out ball is coming up. So that's a critical mistake there, Margo, and you need to control the situation. You didn't know who you could trust. And now we approach the scene that literally every single person emphasized the importance of when talking about this episode. So hope we can do it justice. This is, my God, like, who? Calliope? I wonder if it's because she just saw her mother and, like, her mom just, like, called out the fact that Juliet was the vampire. But Calliope is on an intense, like, defensive level. Like, the shit that she says is so hurtful. Calliope's guard is up. Like, the the bricks have been laid here. Like, she is trying to protect herself, clearly. And it's lashing out at Juliet, I think because the she knows the fact that Juliet is a vampire is now clear in her mother's mind. And I don't think she wants her mom to know that yet. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if she ever wants her mom to know, but for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction, Calliope. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, when she says to Juliet, like, wow, you're a bad liar. You know, everyone's got to tell, but, like, I thought monsters like you. And I'm like, oh, ouch monsters like you and then Juliet is just like I'm not a very good monster then and is a little bit defeated and I feel kind of bad for her and so sad and she like asks Calliope if everything was a lie and Cal's fucking response is like well I sure didn't go to comfort you (laughs) yeah she is really trying to put that gap between them and I think in Cal's defense, she is working overtime to convince herself that she doesn't like Juliet right here. So as a reaction to her very strong feelings, she's lashing out. Even after she says, I didn't go to comfort you, she still says, still, you were the first to welcome me here and make me feel dot, dot, dot. And I think they did a flashback. And then she's like, you know, kind of like brushing it away. She's like, well, that was before I realized what you were. And then she says, you know, I couldn't keep my eyes off of you. And I'm like, damn, Cal, like, say less. Like, you are just, you (laughs) have laid it all out. It doesn't. Yeah, it's like she instantly also feels bad I think for telling Juliet she doesn't care about her feelings Juliet asks her how she knew and when she's like I couldn't take my eyes off of you and the music swells it's like Juliet understands Cal in that moment and it's so romantic and cute that I am melting thinking about that Julia is like kind of touched by the fact that Cal was looking watching her too and that this connection and this attraction is mutual once Juliet gets that reassurance after Cal leaves she kind of lays her feelings a bit bare and says I know you are planning on killing me but I promise I only wanted to kiss you and I've been thinking about that since I first saw you I didn't mean to bite you Calliope says, but you did bite me. Juliet says, would you have staked me if I hadn't? And Cal very assuredly says yes. But then Juliet gets a little smile and a a little swagger to her and says, I can hear your heartbeat. It races when you lie. And Cal storms off, and Juliet's feeling pretty good about herself after this interaction. That was the best moment. I like, especially because Cal's face is so like tough, like she tries to look tough and hardened. And Juliet takes her for what she says. You know, like at first, it takes her a minute, but you see her, the way her eyes dart, you see her eyes dart to her chest probably because she's starting to notice something and she tunes into it and then the smirk comes up because like ooh and especially especially because they had just been in the principal's office lying so she probably has some experiential knowledge to like base this off of which is I've heard you lie before I've heard your heart race so you can't try and trick me I know you're lying right now and the dynamic is built so well and the tension is built between them so well and Juliet is finally able to like cut through it with a knife right here and really get to the heart of Cal so we're setting up 
the dynamics between them a little bit. And also we've reached the point where neither girl can really run for their feelings anymore because they both know the truth about them. Oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> so it was definitely one of my favorite scenes of the show and one of the best at depicting their relationship, I think. Okay, now we go to a scene between the mothers. And I got asked to address this. So there's quite the shipping community between <laughs> Margot and Talia online. So what do we think about shipping the mothers? Oh, obviously. <laughs> um, I don't know that that's going to ever happen, but I enjoy reading into their interactions. I'm like fine with just shipping them for fun and having a good time with it that's how I feel about it yeah absolutely I'm gonna have fun with reading into their interactions with knowing that that is absolutely not the intent and it's not going to go anywhere so Margot is trying to make friends and be polite and invite Talia and the Burns family over to dinner and all of these things and Talia is trying to get the upper hand here and let Margot know that she's not one to be fooled and she says Margot you have such a lovely skin what's your secret and Margot goes sunscreen <laughs> I really loved a lot about that because I think you're exactly right like it's Margot acting like she wants to be friends, but really it's that keep your enemies closer type of thing. And then um, Talia's like the secret of the skin and Margot. So it's like she's like sussing her out, like letting her know that she is suspicious. But my favorite part was when Margot goes outside and she just like puts her face up to the sun, you know, like such a look, I can be in the sun. I'm not a vampire. Exactly. <laughs> I'm like, Margot, you are buying into your act so hard right now. You're just like, I am normal. I'm not a monster. We go to church. I can be in the sun. And then we go back to Juliet's mansion, and she's clearly suffering at home. The vamp music is blaring, and she walks in on Eleanor in her room for a nice buzzkill. And she can't believe that Juliet did it and made her first kill, and she wants all of the details. Eleanor found the stake, be like we said she would, because Julia did not hide it very well. And she's basically like, I know you did not do this, bitch. Please tell me what happened. Yes. She comes in prepared with a stake and the morgue documents. <laughs> she's like, tell me about the liver. <laughs> I know it wasn't you. And uh, she says, when did we start keeping secrets from each other? And Juliet says, we don't. And she says, you know, like, I'm here when you want to talk. I'm so interested in their dynamic because they don't give me the feeling of sisters who share everything with each other. I, it's very hard to suss out exactly at this point in the show. But there is some tension going on here that's about the secrets that you don't tell each other because... Julia isn't interested in talking to Eleanor about her relationship with Calliope and Eleanor 
is clearly keeping secrets about her locker of dead body paraphernalia. So there's some secrets happening. And also, can we talk about the fact when Eleanor confronts Juliet with her bloody steak that Cal and Jules theme music starts playing? This very melodic song that is meant to make you feel their romance playing with the steak that Cal stabbed her in the heart with. Like I didn't even notice I didn't even notice the music that happened here. Who else is doing it like that? <laughs> like wow, Julia has got it bad that the see, seeing a bloody wooden steak is making her think of Cal like that. We end with a power play where Eleanor says, sweet little, you are a terrible liar. I'm here if you want to talk. So clearly Eleanor is trying to maintain the power in this relationship right here, even though she doesn't know the whole story. And then we have Cal coming home to test her aunt and uncle and her dad back early in their house. And after a dramatic beat, we find out that Cal was right. She staked a legacy vampire, and that's why she didn't die. Legacies go back to the Garden of Eden, which is foreshadowing I was not prepared for for the next episode. And Cal led them straight to them, and now each and every one of them must die. And we end with the guild's motto in a very dramatic fashion. Our hearts drive us. Duty and logic lead us, and we vow to rid the world of all monsters. So thank you again for all of your support. We've loved having conversations with you on the thoughts of the show and what's driving all of our characters' actions. So please keep sharing that with us. You can DM us. We try to respond to all of you within reason and have these conversations with you. So anything that you want us to focus on in the next episode or things that we maybe have missed in this episode, please share with us. Other than that, you can follow us on Twitter at This Lesbian Shit. Follow us on Instagram at This Lesbian Ship. Download our episodes, rate and review us on iTunes, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. This Lesbian Ship is Intense is a part of the following podcast network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.